first off, hi Ethan, great to see you. Um, you are like the first conversation I've had all week. This was the first. This was like the first week. I, I can't even speak right. Where having a newborn mixed with having an 18 month old like actually brought me to the to the dark side. Oh. For people listening, okay, a couple of things. First of all, Tim is wearing uh, what can only be described as like the emperor of the dark side <laughs> hoodie. It's like a dark black hoodie. Hood well, it's up. Levi's. So yeah, yeah okay. Style, at least. <laughs> it is. It's stylish, but he's like definitely uh, comfortable. We'll say that much. And we're starting at like 220, which is, or 220, I guess 320 East Coast. We're starting a little late, and it's because... Of a few reasons, but one thing Tim said to me goes, dude, I need five minutes. I got to make some coffee or I, I'm not going to make it today. <laughs> so what's going on, man? You uh, is it things just the kids are handful this week or what? Yeah, I wouldn't even say that. My son still sleeps like a champ. My daughter is just different than my son was like my son. When he was a newborn, he would wake up to feed and then he would just pass back out. He's just mm-hmm. like kind of a hamburger in that way. But my daughter is different where she's like, it's not on or off. You know, she does a whole bunch of, there were times where I, I would fall asleep for like a minute and a half increments last night. Oh, <laughs> you know? that's insane. So, <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. But yeah, this was the first week where, you know, my wife and I were downstairs just chatting out back because it's a beautiful day here in Nashville. We're sitting on the back porch, just kind of looking at each other like, <laughs> are, are we alive? Like, is this real life? It's like hallucination um, territory. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's that. Other than that, it's been a great week. Been killing it this week, man. Things are going really well, and I'm grateful. Um, so, what about you? Anything you need to get off your chest, or should I jump right into this bad boy? No, no. Well, I, I'm keen to see what you brought. But you mentioned you were killing it. I wanted to say I noticed that you published you published the thing that you wrote about Jordan Peterson. Which I think is the first time I've ever seen you mention the blank page on Twitter. Is am I right about that? Or yeah, that's the first time I ever put it out there. You are correct in that assessment. Yes, pretty rad, man. Pretty rad. So I noticed a couple of it. It was that you said it's bothering you. It was bothering me. It was like something that I felt like I had to get off my chest. Oh, the conversation that you, the thing that you actually wrote. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting, man. I read the whole thing. So do you want to summarize it for people or do, do you maybe not want to talk about it or I don't know. I'll talk just... about it. Sure. Cool. I've mentioned Jordan Peterson two or three times in this podcast and I find him a fascinating guy because he's obsessed with communism and I've always been kind of weirdly obsessed with communism. Also advocates for people being able to defend themselves with articulation and speech. And that's something that I've really had to embark upon in my life for other reasons that I've talked about in the show. But more than anything, years ago, there was a lecture that he gave. And the lecture was about the story Pinocchio and how in this story, we all take at face value this incredibly random concept of a wooden-headed marionette boy puppet that goes through this archetypical hero's journey and lands at the bottom of the ocean to rescue his father inside the belly of a whale. <laughs> and like Even when you say it out loud, it's like, what kind of story is that? But we all watch that story and we just totally take it at face value. You know, like it makes perfect sense to us. And so in this lecture, Jordan Peterson's argument was that it makes sense to us because at a human level, what it's actually representing is us facing ourselves in like the deepest, darkest abyss that there is. And, and more or less like the, the, the worst place to look and the scariest thing is looking into like the abyss inside yourself. And that's what like the representation of your father is, you know, it's like the thing that you could become. And it was at a point in my life where I really needed to hear it because I had, I had a challenge approaching me in my life right at that time like that day really and so um this podcast had a, a huge impact on me where into the belly of the whale you know what you want most will be found where you least want to look and mm. from that moment it helped me a lot look directly at things that really really frightened me i mean honestly even though we talk about 
like focusing on the one thing that matters and that whole thing with Stasi was like, let's just have the courage to look at that thing that matters and like actually matters. That was part of that whole season of my life as well. Anyway, I highlight that to say that Jordan Peterson, for the most part, has been a real positive influence in my life. As such, there's been times where he's like a conundrum because he says such vile things about people sometimes. And so much of his message is about like uplifting others and about taking accountability for your own life and about like the power of an encouraging word. And he says these things like, wow, that's so powerful. And then in the next sentence, he'll like so vehemently like insult people or philosophies that he doesn't believe in. And so it finally clicked the other day. I saw this interview with him, whereas Pierce Morgan, he's a, a British journalist. I guess he's kind of like, um, I think he's like a Labour Party journalist. I think that could be totally wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure he is, though. So it'd be like Anderson Cooper interviewing somebody like that. He started fucking crying again. And I'm like, what is with this dude always crying on camera? And then it just dawned on me, like the reason why he's so vehemently passionate about these ideas of taking personal accountability for yourself and about like some transgenderism type stuff and and about individualism specifically is because he hasn't figured it out for himself. And it was like, oh, shit, like, duh, everybody is just a person, you know, everybody, no matter the facade and no matter the suits. And no matter his like intellect and his ability to articulate arguments, like deep down, he's still just a fucking person. And the reason why he cares so much about it is because he hasn't figured it out for himself. Mm. And it just clicked. And I was like, damn it, you know what? Like, this is on my heart. I have to write it. And so I was up at three in the morning. And what better time to yeah. write an article about, <laughs> about. A, a, Jordan, a Jordan Peterson moral dilemma than at 3.50 in the morning when I, I slept for an hour. And that's the story. Best time to put complicated thoughts on paper. <laughs> I uh, I liked it, man. I read it, and uh, I have a similar sort of fascination with his work. And the thing that I pulled out of that piece, I think, is how complex it is to be sort of a full, well-rounded person these days. Because yeah. it's almost like we... and. Uh, it's almost like we demand, not to, not that we demand this, but, you know, when you're in public spotlight, such a tiny part of you is actually out there. Yes. And it just gets amplified and amplified, especially these days when a single thing that you do can go viral and be like more popular than anything else you've mm -hmm. ever created. And that's what everybody knows you by. It's kind of how everybody knows you. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's really interesting to think about how, uh, what a limited view of a person that ultimately creates and how those views can just kind of crack open as soon as you are exposed to like more of somebody. I also think a lot about just, you know, I think one of the things with him in particular that intrigues me is that he has been fighting really hard for a lot of years. And whether you agree with his stances or not, I think one thing that's probably objectively true or difficult to debate would be that he's been at like the center of controversy for a long time. Yeah. And I think that's hard, man. Very stressful. It's, just, it's yeah, and who knows how much of a of a of a challenge that's been for his family or something like that. I think what it makes me think of is almost like PTSD, dude. It's like how long can you fight a battle in public before you start to before there's almost like no coming back from it, you know? Like is there Yeah, is but there, I think he likes it. Well, you said that too. I thought that was an interesting line because I think you said something along the lines of like he's gotten addicted to the controversy. Yeah. Which I think is kind of an interesting, that's an interesting assertion. And I can, I could imagine that happening to somebody, right? Especially once you know that it works too. But there's like a, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. I think, I think part of it is probably that his social media is, you know, probably also partially managed. So I know this. I have friends who are big, like, you know, they've got big followings. And they run some of their social media, but a lot of it is like interns and stuff. And so sometimes mm -hmm. something goes out the door and, and you have to have a conversation with an intern and be like, yo, this was not on brand. We're going to fucking deal with it yeah, because it's out there and it's like, it's doing work now. But, you know, sometimes I think one thing that's kind of hidden from people's view is the fact that some of the things that people say are not necessarily being said by them. They're being said by interns who are trying to match a voice, trying to match a thing, but also trying to like, execute on goals like growth goals and stuff yeah, like that sure uh in the case sure. of the tweet that well the tweet that you mentioned i uh, i saw the interview that he did the follow-up interview so he was using 
language that suggested that he wrote that one personally. He wrote but, it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, just in general, I think it's so complex when you look at these super popular people. It's hard to put them in a box, man. Yes. And it's a constant reminder to myself. I had a girlfriend in Florida years ago who was uh, training to be a clinical psychologist. And she had a mentor. And uh, I remember one time she really criticized me of black and white thinking because part of like my recovery is abstinence. And it's easy, it's easier for me to just be like, I'm never eating sugar again than it is to figure out like it's okay to have a couple of bites of ice cream at Thanksgiving. You know, like I struggle with that. And so I think one of my defense mechanisms has been like real just black and white thinking like I'm, I'm all in or I'm not at all, which makes me all in except just from like a negative perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and during this conversation, she said that her mentor told her that the world is gray. And that always really stuck with me because even when I find people or have ideas that really speak to me, there's just as many conflicting ideas that are also just as beautiful and are also true, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I think, I mean, geez, like now we're getting into social media and society as a whole with all the things that are going on right now. But I think I have done a good job, I hope, of constantly reminding myself that it's okay to take things and blend them together in an overall arching understanding of what it means to be a good person and like you can believe two opposing ideas at the same time and both of them can be true and like you can mm -hmm. be okay with that you know mm. so that's why yeah it's why that stuck with me well it's, it's really interesting too it's tricky territory because you sort of dance this line between being like a well-integrated person and a hypocrite right because exactly you know, I think we've said this line on the podcast before, like one of the signs of intelligence is the ability to hold two conflicting truths mm -hmm. sort of in your mind or in your heart at the same time. And I believe that. I certainly believe that. Then there's a version of that where it's like somebody, it's almost, it, it, there's like a, a twisted version of that where in somebody claims to hold two conflicting truths, but it's really, it, it's almost like they hold neither, right? Because they're, it's just convenient to use one truth at one time and yes. another at another. So it's a really, it is a, it's an interesting sort of area to reflect on. I struggle with it though, man. I, so here's the thing. I grew up moving all over the place and later in my life, which I guess I'm still pretty early in my life. It's dumb to say that, but like when I was in my twenties, I finally heard this uh, term third culture kid. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. I had never heard of it either until then. But the idea is basically these are like kids who kind of grow up in culture, in a culture or a place that's not where they were born and it's not where their parents were born. And so they're expo exposed to, you know, different cultures. And most of my growing up was done in the U.S. So it's not like I was exposed to different languages and stuff. But we moved around a lot. We used to move around like every couple of years at the, at the most. And at one point, um, it was every few months. So. I ended up developing sort of this personality, which turns out to match up perfectly with this this sort of like psychological profile, what they call a third culture kid. And people can look this up on Wikipedia if they want to. If you grew up moving around a lot and you didn't hear this term, you'll probably read the Wikipedia page and it'll uh, it'll really resonate. But the idea is like third culture kids, there's like there's pluses and minuses to being able to do this thing where you see both sides of the equation. So sure. third culture kids tend to be a little better at it, right? Like because you because you have experienced different cultures or diff different like ways of living. It's easier for you to hear two people who disagree with each other and be like, ah, oh, well, I can see why this guy's right. And I can see why that guy's right. And you know, there is no black and white in this situation that tends to come easier. But what's harder then is like assimilating into any particular place and really feeling like a part of it because uh, the entire time you got one foot out the door, you know, you're, you're sort of like, I can see why this worldview makes sense and i could also walk away from it tomorrow and like be totally fine so one of the reasons that i like our thing is because i feel like you actually are better at having like those sort of like black and not that you hold them strongly but you're you're better at coming out and saying the black and white thing mm. where i'll be like i kind of default to the shades of gray first and for me it's refreshing to find somebody who's just like 
nah, this guy's an asshole, dude. Like, he's just being a dick. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know. I can kind of see this. I can kind of see that. So I don't know. I think uh, I think you need both sides. Like, you need to be able to hold, uh, understand that the world exists yeah. in shades of gray. And sometimes you just got to draw a line in the sand and be like, no, no. Was <laughs> that scene from Family Guy? It was like, you're being as stubborn as a mule. Did you ever see that? No, but I can totally picture it. It's just like, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, it cuts, it's a, one of these cutaways and it's, uh, a mule sitting on a couch with some guy and the guy's like, and the mule's just like, no, no, Kevin Bacon <laughs> wasn't in Footloose. No, he wasn't. <laughs> the guy's like, yes, he was. What are you talking about? Of course he was. No, no. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. I digress. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's cool. That, that's a really cool place for us to start the conversation off with. Um, I very rarely share that blog. And I write in it basically every day, but um, I noticed you got sponsors over there. Yeah, it's been cool. It's How's been, that uh, going? Great. Yeah, dude, you inspired me. I'm really not lying. This this free sponsorship, entry level front end product into a back end high dollar product. This is my move now, especially for Tim Stotts. The blank page is just it's cool and enjoying it especially enjoying the experiment of as people have approached me to sponsor tim stodds as a newsletter i've thrown it out there I'm like hey if you want i got this other one too uh i write it every day it goes out five days a week it's got about 1200 members about 400 people read it every day i'll give you a link at the bottom of it and so the two people i'm two for two right now um the two sponsorships one of them actually is the topic of what i want to tell you about today who approached me to sponsor my newsletter were also just like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> and I was like, sure. <laughs> so I'm all about it. It's That's cool. awesome. Real quick, before we get into that, I want to, I want to just touch on one or two other things that you said early in the Jordan Peterson thing. I think these are kind of interesting. So you mentioned this thing about looking into the abyss and I love that, uh, sort of mental framework or reminder that often you're going to find the, answers to your problems by like looking at whatever it is you fear most there was i think it was carl jung who and i haven't read his stuff but a friend of mine has read his stuff and mentioned this is why we fear the ocean so much or at least that was like Mm. jung's theory is that the unknowable depth of the ocean reminds us of like our own unknowable depth which that imagery has always stuck with me but then the other thing is like this whole concept there's there's a part of me I find this to be very important, especially now, because we live in such complex times. And I'm, I've been paying like really close attention to the whole conflict over in Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine, what's yeah. going on over there? <laughs> yeah, everybody is. But, but like I, I, I follow it really closely. I watch it. There's like a whole bunch of analysts that I, I watch their stuff every single day. I read their newsletters. Like for whatever Peter reason. Peter Zayan. Yeah. 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 He's End so of globalization. He's, yeah. he's very interesting stuff. I know. And he knows like every population data of every tiny little town. Yeah. He's, I've been following him for a while. He's my favorite. Yeah. He's, he's really interesting. He's a very good speaker too. He's like very captivating on stage. He's, he's a fantastic, uh, performer in, in addition to being extremely intelligent. Yeah. But here's the thing about all these guys is that I'm also very aware of the fact that they, for the most part, like agree with me and or the, I agree with them and listening to their stuff makes me feel good, right? Because like Peter, what is it? Zion, Zayan, how do you say it? Zayan. Yeah, it's kind of hard. For people listening, if you haven't run into him, he's a really interesting thinker, but he's very like pro-America. His shtick is co- sort of like that we are entering the end of globalization, right? The supply chain issues are basically going to be an issue and uh, I don't want to oversimplify his stance, but like his new book, I think it's called The End of Globalization or something like that. It's called The um, End of the World is Only the Beginning. Okay. Great and, title, and, by the way. <laughs> it's a great title. Yeah. But that's basically the idea, right? Which is like we're we're exiting this era of globalized industry and we're it's going to be replaced by something that's much more localized. And that's going to hurt pretty much everybody except for America, which is like comforting if you're in America. Yeah. <laughs> it, but... But I'm very aware of the fact that I'm like, okay, well, you're listening to people whose opinion helps to alleviate some form of stress. Like, like, like oh, yeah, these are very stressful times, but don't worry, you're safe because you're in America. Or like, oh, these are very stressful times, but don't worry, Russia cannot win this war for these reasons. X, Y, and Z. The list goes on and on and on. And I don't want to make this political, so let me just get to the point. What I'm trying to do 
is balance those or like try to flip the script and like flip the thinking and look for where our own mistakes are being made in the same way that we claim other people are making mistakes. So I'll give you a, a very specific example. When I watch coverage of what, uh, of like the Russian mobilization, right? As an American and somebody who's like subject to all of our propaganda, I look at that and I'm like, what, how, how, why are they doing this? Right? Why do they think they can win this, first of all? And why do it in the first place? And, you know, the answers to that are complex. But the big thing that like stands out to me is like just from a purely economical standpoint, it doesn't seem like this war is winnable from Russia's side. And so then what I have to do is I have to ask myself, okay, fine, but like flip the script. Where are we making the exact same mistake? So what things are we doing? What are we blinded to that's like leading us to act in a certain way, maybe related to this conflict, maybe something else entirely? It's like what uh, beliefs do we hold that are forcing us to act a certain way that is like self-delusional? I'll put, I'll mm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think I don't have answers for that yet, but that comes from the same place that you're talking about, which is like, wh- what is our abyss, right? What is the thing that we're ignoring that will ultimately be our downfall because we're not willing to look at it? I want to be able to identify those things, look at them, and then tackle them. Whether I, I mean, there's not, obviously there's not much you can do on a national level for any individual person, right? No, but I know what you're saying. The same thing happens in general. Yeah, the same thing plays out on a personal level. It happens on yeah. a business level. It's like, what is the thing that you're not willing to look at yeah. that will be your downfall if you don't look at it? And I, the, for whatever reason, the conflict in Russia is like one of the more, um, sorry, conflict in Ukraine. Let's be clear about that. But it's one of the more pertinent examples of that for me right now. But I think your point is universal in that it plays out in a lot of different domains. Certainly is. It, in the article, I said it's probably the most impactful thing I've learned in the last five years because it just it gave me the courage to be driving down the street in my own head and be able to recognize all of the ways that I protect myself with my thinking. Hmm. And the world is not safe. So you're better off just acknowledging that you're alone and in danger <laughs> so that you can do something about it than to pretend like, you know, bears can't fucking climb trees and like you're going to be safe <laughs> up there. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. I don't know. I, I wonder if like one day we'll have like uh, AI doubles or something like that. Because it's like, well, how could you possibly break this information to yourself too? It's a very hard wall to break through because you're always subject to your own like your own blind spots, you know? Yeah. And then anything that doesn't come from that is going to come from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Which means you're um I don't know, you're you're, you're going to filter that. You're going to put that through your own filter. But now with journey. AI. Yeah. It is certainly an endless journey. All right. Um, yeah, Maybe enough right. philosophizing. What do you got? What do you got for me? Hey, I, I love that chat, man. Um, I think this is this is some of the stuff that we've talked about for a long time, just seeing where our podcast takes us. So for everybody that is here for the writing and the business, we are here for it as well. So I'm going to share my screen. Let me make sure I don't have any like client information on my screen. Yeah, we're good. So you brought up the sponsorship. For the record, I'm not getting paid to show this right now but you mentioned ai and so this is another perfect segue i don't have a whole lot to say about this particular new product other than it excites me and scares me at the same time and i'll tell you why hold on but we'll say what it is first so yeah exactly it's called growth bar growthbarseo.com the product is it's it's basically a gpt3 but mm-hmm. they've created a really user-friendly UX, a uh, user interface that makes it so that you can easily take content, put it into a field, give the AI a couple of cues, and then the AI can spit out content for you. Mm-hmm. And I have been, and I still am a believer that this won't replace writing. And I'll tell you why. Because if we ever get to the point where every SEO in the world has one of these tools, 
and every one of these tools is basically gaming the algorithm, then that means that every one of these tools is going to be able to be an exact match for what the algorithm wants. And when that happens, then what is it is there? Mm -hmm. You know, so like even if the whole entire thing becomes super AI generated, there's still going to be some kind of forced differentiating differentiating factor. And that is always going to be what we talked about before with like, uh, you know, when art can be commoditized, the only thing left is the idea or the representation Mm -hmm. or the story behind it. And so that's my thought process on why AI won't take over the world for writers, at least at least not in my lifetime. But we, we tested it. We, we tested this out. And we tested it out on a very specific... Where is it right here? Uh, a very specific client that I have. This is a very small client. It's not a Stasi client. It's just a personal consulting client that I took on. It's a woman. She lives in Florida. And her company is called Boo Boo Balls. Like you're a little kid and you got a boo-boo. That's what it's about. And they're these tiny little keychain ice packs and they're cute and they're quaint and it's, it's a great business. You know, she just got like this really cool thing going. And so what we did is we looked at this website and we thought to ourselves, how in the hell are we going to SEO such a weird, obscure product that not a lot of people are probably searching for? And so when we did a little bit of research, we discovered that, hey, people actually do search for ice pack keychains was one of them or people. Yeah, I mean, not a lot, but yeah, they do. Where people search for, for, like, um, one of the products she sells is is little like zip packages to put band aids in, you know. So it's like a cute little package that doesn't look so plasticky and tacky if you bring it with you to the playground, you know. Okay. So you know, I can even show you Boo Boo Ball USA for the people not watching the video, and we use this tool, Growth Bar SEO. And we came up with some benchmarks for the template of content for the products. We didn't do anything else, just the products. So she sells boo-boo kits. She calls them keychains, ice packs, refill kits, tiny, quaint little products, right? And we fucking ramped this thing on all of the product pages. And we increased the traffic by 40%. Overnight, and we basically doubled the weekly revenue what? from SEO specifically. Yeah, so most Wait, of the revenue can comes you from tell social me, media. Can you but, tell me a little bit more about what specifically? So you tested this SEO uh, AI writing thing. What? Show me what it actually wrote, though. It wrote all this. It wrote the product pages. It wrote yeah, all of them. Can you click on it so that I can actually see what that is, though. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hold on. Let me read this out loud a little bit for people real quick. So if you scroll up, who says being a baseball fan has to be about sitting? It, wait, for, just so I'm clear, it wrote all this, wrote or like, did it, it it write this and then you guys refined it? No, we gave it a baseline. So basically, we you have to give it instructions. Okay, and is that a, just a prompt, or do you did you actually feed it like? No, uh, here's it's, it's like a, a page prompt, dude. I'd say we spent forty minutes on the instructions. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just gonna read it out loud. It says, "Who says being a baseball fan has to be all about sitting in the stands and eating peanuts?" This baseball keychain with a kid's first aid kit is the perfect accessory for any diehard baseball fan. You put these keywords fan. in there, by the way. Okay. Yeah, you say add these keywords. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Uh, not, uh, not only does it show your love for the game, but it also comes in handy in case of any minor injuries. Okay, I'm going to keep going. This And it goes on and on. This, so uh, there's about a page of content here, including some like bulleted, um, let's see, our baseball keychain so. comes with a secret kid's first aid kit. So it's got kind of the uh, bullets of like what's included in the kit. It's got, why should you get this baseball keychain? And there's three bullets. It says, this baseball keychain is also great for storing small necessities like hair accessories, small medicine, money cards, and secret stuff inside. Perfect for those little actions. You can accidents. see the robot right there. That Dude. was secret stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is good. I mean, this is like good copywriting. You guys didn't refine this at all. I, I would imagine you would have had to have touched up a little bit. Come on. Nope. Okay. And then specifications. I'm, I'm assuming you guys feed that. You have to have fed that. Yeah. In, right? That's okay. That's yeah. the thing. And just uh, four by five, ages three and up, polyester, hand wash only. Okay, man. Well, there goes my it's job. Wild, right? <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. I. I'm I'm actually glad you brought this up. First of all, this is so cool. So you said how quickly did the rankings go up? You said overnight, or was it? 
Uh, overnight is a speculative term in SEO. This is the difference in a week. Okay. So there was wow. zero SEO traffic when we took on the account and yep. the, we took on the account in the beginning of August. So this only shows the last 28 days. And for people not watching the video, there's two lines on this graph. One of them is kind of like a dotted line, which is the historical data. And then one of them is a solid line, which is this week's data. So you can see in the historical data that the first quarter of the line just floats on the bottom because there yep. was no SEO traffic at all. And then in the beginning of September, it, it, it popped up. That's when we did it. And so mm-hmm. since then, it's got a 36% increase even since the beginning of September. Granted, a lot of that is from the first couple of days of the month because remember the previous month had zero traffic. So it's plateaued a bit, but I mean, dude, it's, it's, it doubled the revenue from the SEO perspective. That's Not awesome. From everything, but yeah. this is what we're looking at is a screenshot from Google Analytics. And so we got the tracking and Google Analytics so we can track the revenue that came specifically from search. Can we look at the product page one more time? Okay. This is, this was a really cool topic to bring up today for a few reasons. This is timely. Uh, have you been keeping up with the news about? I mean, there's other AI. This is a big week for AI generated content. So Dolly two, yeah, Dolly two, yeah, yeah, that went public yesterday. So now anybody can use it. Uh, I've been playing with that. That's a lot of fun. And then on the same day, Meta announced their uh, tool. Did you see this? The no. video creation engine. No. Basically the same thing. They basically just one upped OpenAI because they said, oh yeah, like. Uh, you know, AI generated <laughs> yeah, still images photos are for losers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about how about a video? And they're like the video examples are like unicorns running on a beach or something like that. It's, it's <laughs> wild. So I've been playing with Dolly too. And I um this is a whole topic that I track pretty closely because it's obviously directly in line with my job. And I'm I think a lot of people are what's that? I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. Cool. So here's my opinion. I think this is a net positive for the creative industry. And we'll have to hash this out live here because you're talking writing. I'm talking images. Those are similar but different enough that this might be different depending on the industry you're talking about. But for images, this was my experience. So I started playing with Dolly 2, which for people who don't know, it's an AI engine. You type in a prompt and the computer will just invent an image based on like what you want. And I use it for a bunch of stuff. So let me uh, give me a second. I'm going to pull up my account and I'll show you here. My experience, I came away with like three insights and I'll, I'll share my screen when it comes up. The first was I don't think Dolly 2 is going to be an issue for professional creators. Not really. And there's a few reasons for it. First, it's still not perfect. So when you type in certain prompts, uh, like graphically, it has a hard time with faces. It has a hard time with hands. It has a hard time with little details. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm someone who is running a business and like I need professional illustration, I can't just kind of wing it on faces and hands and stuff like that. Right. So what does that mean? It means if I'm actually somebody who's already paying for illustration, I'm not going to stop paying for it and start using Dolly. So I don't think Dolly is going to pull people out of the industry. Instead, I think it's going to be the reverse. I think what it, what it has done is opened up a whole lot of creative horsepower for people who couldn't afford professional illustration beforehand yeah. and weren't even thinking about it. Now you can go do this. You can play with it a little bit. And I think what's going to end up happening is people are going to get pretty close to what they want. Yeah. Some of them are just going to use those images. And then I think it's going to be more of an on-ramp for creativity where they're going to go, you know what? This is really close to what we want. Now we just need to find a person who can take this over the finish line. So I think at least for now, this may change in time, but for now, I think it's going to be a net positive for creators. Okay, I got it up. So let me just share my screen real quick. The way this works is like you literally just type in whatever you want. And I'm um, scrolling through my screen for people who are listening here. I got Ben Franklin wearing aviators. I've got uh, some science, like science stuff, which I'll explain in a second. Got some paintings of rabbits. Uh, each one of these has like a little bit of a story behind it, but um, the one that I want to focus on are uh, is this one like this set of images which is a whole bunch of images of like they look like bees doing science experiments so we wrote this article at trends about mead which is wine made out of honey 
mm-hmm. I thought it would be fun to insert some sort of dolly generated illustration for that story. And so I started prompting this thing and just like trying to come up with something cool related to science and bees and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to scroll through this. I had a couple of different prompts. I said a, a bee mad scientist mixing sparkling chemicals in wine bottles while honey drips down the walls in the background. What I was trying to get was like, I wanted a bee in the hive. Like, and this is like a mad scientist, like, you know, making stuff. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm flipping through it for people listening here. They can see there's like a whole bunch of different styles. <laughs> That's wrong direction. And it came up with some pretty cool shit. Like there's, it's, it's pretty much dead on. I'm seeing a lot of scientists that look like bees. Then there's some stuff where, okay, I said there were three takeaways. The first is it's not perfect, right? Yeah. So faces, the second is related to the prompting. There's a definite skill involved in prompting these things. Certainly. I want to hear. There's a skill involved with there. giving. There's a couple of them. Like, so growth bars, the one that we use is another one called Jasper. There's a skill in creating the prompt. Yep. And so to me, what that means is like, okay, well, maybe illustrators, sure, maybe you're not going to work with an illustrator the same, quite the same way, but it just becomes more of a consultative role where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, what are you trying to get at? Yeah. Okay. I, the skill will then be prompting the AI and that's what you'll pay for. So there's still an opportunity there as a creative. You just need to learn these tools so that you're the person people pay to create results faster because a lot of people are going to come in here as these get more complex. You're not going to have the time to come up to speed on how to use an AI engine to create creative, especially not for one-off projects. Agencies sure. will in-house that talent for sure. sure. But individual companies, it's it's similar to being like, well, why don't you just learn how to use Adobe? Yeah, Adobe replaced like an entire studio worth of creatives if you know how to use it. But, you know, it didn't like do away with the creative industry. So there's skill in prompting it. Uh, it's not perfect visually. Also, I've played with the writing version. Like I've played with GPT-3 and there's a situation there where like it, it can't really handle long content yet. So I yeah. think long form is still pretty safe. Did you guys experiment with that at all? I know you said those product pages about 400 words. So that's like, that's a pretty short piece of content. Yeah. Did you go any longer? No, we didn't go any longer. We didn't need to. They're just product pages. If you would allow me to, I have a little bit of a rabbit hole to go out with artificial intelligence because I think I actually have the perfect example of what it will be able to do and where it will fall short. So there's a computer game that I don't play anymore because I'm a super nerd and I was getting really bad wrist pain. So I had to stop playing it. But the game's called Starcraft. And it's a strategy game. You start with the base and you got to kill your opponent, basically. It's super high level because you have to crunch a lot of decisions in your head and make real-time decisions. That's why it's called an RTS, real-time strategy game. And some people have called it 3D chess. And here's the difference. There's AIs, very good AIs with StarCraft, and there are unbeatable AIs with chess. And it's 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 to the point where even the best chess players in the world know that you'll never be able to beat a high-level AI at chess because with chess, there is such thing as a perfect move mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. But with something like StarCraft, there's not such thing as the perfect move and i'll give you an example if you want to beat an ai in starcraft and i know a lot of people don't know the game so i'm just making a really simple example is like you can build buildings and stuff and you build it all in real time so the you can build a building and just start building it and the ai isn't smart enough to know when to shoot the building and when to shoot the enemy unit the other thing that's shooting at you because mm-hmm. sometimes it might make more sense to shoot the building. And sometimes it might make more sense to shoot the, to shoot the enemy unit. And so there's really cool tournaments about who can make AIs. And sometimes the AIs fight each other. And it's, it's pretty interesting from the computer programming standpoint. But the point I'm getting at isn't about video games. The point I'm getting at is that for me, that always seemed like kind of a clear distinction where it's like, if there is a perfect decision to make, then an AI, I think, is going to be heavily, heavily relied upon. But if there is a 
if there is a decision to make where even the word perfect is the wrong word, where, where there's, there's a decision to make that is some kind of combination between nuance and probability, it's just going to be so hard for an AI to figure that out because even if it makes the statistically most probable choice every single time, the law of, of big numbers, there's like a, a bunch of different laws that for whatever reason will always create anomalies. And so those anomalies are continuously going to break the assuredness that AI can bring to the creative agency, right? Because you typed in, I'm looking back at the picture, a bumblebee laughing scientist mixing sparkling chemicals in wine bottles, digital art. When I hear that, I think the laughing scientist is a bumblebee. Mm-hmm. But what did it create? It created a laughing scientist and a bumblebee, right? And so like, there's no such thing as a perfect choice. And I right. think that's always going to be the, the differentiating factor between the, the symbiotic relationship of human intellect and masterful execution of artificial intelligence i totally agree i think that was well said and it's striking me that that there's a component of this that actually ties in with the earlier part of this conversation which is that you know one of the reasons ai is so good in certain circumstances is because of that ability to quote unquote look in that darkness right like ai is completely cold yeah emotionless and so it will just observe what worked over and over and over and over go like what actually worked what didn't work and it gets closer and closer and closer and humans aren't as good as that so humans will always have some level of uh like emotion in inside the decision which is why there's always that unpredictability but to your point it makes it very difficult for ai to ever come like perform 100% in a situation where there's a human interacting on the other side but because of that unpredictability, because there's, and, and I have not seen the stats. I'd actually be very interested to know. Um, I've heard anecdotally that like, so professional chess players play each other and those games go very smoothly for the reason that you gave, which is that there basically are right and wrong moves in chess and the pros all know them. So you make a move and then you can be pretty sure of what your opponent's going to do because there's only a certain number of options. But I've heard from some people who are really good at chess that it's actually very hard to play beginners because they don't make the right moves. Yeah. And it, that doesn't mean a beginner is going to accidentally beat somebody who's great at chess, but it throws them off their like wave, you know? Um, and I wonder if that same thing accelerates all the way up the chain to like AI where it's like, yeah, AI will be great in these situations or potentially even playing other AIs, right? But as soon as you introduce humans into the equation, like you, you just have a level of unpredictability that's uh, never going to be completely overcome by yeah. pattern recognition, because pattern recognition alone can't account for every single outlier. Which then that's that's the stake. Come very, very, very close. But the for people listening, the image that we're looking at right now, interestingly, there is a bumblebee in the image, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look close, this man is also half bumblebee. He's got wings. wings, You're right. His arms are yellow and black. And then what I said earlier, look at his hands. Like they're like one looks kind of like a hand. The other one almost looks like a heart. And it's like, this is cool. This is a cool piece of art, but it's not perfect. And so if I'm going to use this as a business owner, yeah, I'm going to use Dolly to get this close. And then I'm going to go talk to a human and be like, okay, let's fix his hand. And like, I'd actually rather have my brand colors in his beard. And like, you're you're not going to waste all that time trying to get the computer to do this perfectly. It's just, you're going to get as close as you possibly can, and then you're going to get a person to do the rest, at least for now. So mm-hmm. I'm on board with a lot of this AI content stuff. I don't think it's a threat to creators in the same way. Here's what yeah, it is yeah. a threat to. Here's what it's a threat to. It's a threat to anybody who's not great at their job, right? Like if you're relying yeah. on the fact that people find your job complicated, like if you can artificially make your job seem more complex than it is, and that's how you get your money, you're screwed. Because, you know, like, computers are just going to blow all that out of the water. But I don't think people listening to this are, like, in that situation for the most part. I think people listening to this are, yeah, they're in the business of, like, offering a service that is actually difficult to do. And all this has done is made it easier. I think it's going to expand the client pool. And there's something else that I wanted to talk about to this, too, which is, like, which I didn't expect. 
which is as soon as I started playing with this, dude, it made me want to be better at art. Really? Yeah, because there's there's something that's so intriguing about you type something in, like whatever comes out of your head, you just type it in and you hit create and you just see what the computer makes. And that's cool. But while I was going through that, I was like, man, I wish somebody could just be like, you know what we want? We want like a mad scientist B type thing. And be like, and I could just sketch that out and be like, oh, like like this, right? No, oh, maybe that, but like a little bit darker, or like sure. oh, maybe that, but like a more like more uh, steampunk style. It made me want to be better at art. And so what I was thinking was, I really think this is the kind of thing. Here's I I think what's going to happen is a lot of people who don't consider themselves to be creative, whether that's writing, video, images, whatever. I think they're going to start using these things and it's going to be an on-ramp for human creativity. I don't think it's a replacement for it. I 100% agree. Did you ever read the book Peak by Anders? Mm. How's his name? Erickson, maybe? Anders Erickson? I don't think so. It was really fascinating. And I didn't finish the whole thing. It was one of those books that could have been a long essay, but it was great. And the guy was a doctor who studied memory and studied the peaks of human performance. And when it comes to memory, humans' ability to memorize became increasingly more better, I guess. <laughs> like Humans could start memorizing hundreds and hundreds of digits once they started working with computers. And so I think that what we're going to see is computers are only going to stretch the limit of what we're capable of. You know, it's, I didn't expect, when we were talking about the Jordan Peterson thing, I didn't expect this to carry over to so many different areas of this conversation, but I really think it does because there's, there's another aspect of this. We were talking about that ability to look into the abyss or like look at what you fear the most. Yeah. I think that's so crucial for staying relevant as a creator too. I'm thinking about, this. Yeah, because people get like romantic with the way that it worked, with the way that it used to be. Exactly. That was actually another point of peak where uh, 70 year old doctors, doctors that have a lot of experience are far less effective at treating medicine as like the 24 year old intern because the 70 year old doctor just, I've seen it all. There's nothing mm. you can surprise me with. And, and <laughs> they get hooked on the way that you know, medicine is supposed to be, whereas an intern is, uh, but maybe the expression is like piss and vinegar, right? Where they want to know all the new stuff. They want to really, really push themselves. And so I think you're totally right. It's like a, it's a forced learned skill. You have to be willing to learn it mm -hmm. if to continuously, not just improve, but stretch your ideas of what works and what doesn't work. You're making me think, too, there's an important aspect of this that is it's almost like um, embracing both the old and the new. And here's yeah. here's why. Because what I'm learning, I'm at uh, a weird age right now, just 32. So I for the first time, I'm kind of in this weird age where nobody cares about my generation anymore. Right. Like for, for years, everyone was talking about millennials, millennials, oh, no. this, millennials, that millennials are the worst. Now they millennials just need the us. <laughs> yeah, and it's like now no well now it's like nobody cares. Now it's all Gen Z this, Gen Z that. And so what I noticed for the first time in my life is a whole bunch of like Gen Z people coming up and they've got all these new ideas about like what's right, what's wrong, the way things should be done. And some of them are interesting. Some of them though I know are a mistake. And what I'm seeing is that process of the generation thinking that they have the right answer and then realizing over time oh wait no actually they used to do this differently and the old way is better for these reasons right like yeah. I, i'm watching another generation go through that and i think every generation goes through that and so you're making me think there's this thing where it's like yes you need to be ruthless about questioning tearing down potentially the 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 uh assumptions of whatever your field is right or the like the 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 Best I don't know, practices. the sacred cows of your field. Yeah. Yep, there's, there's things that can't be questioned. But you also, if you really want to be good at this, at the same exact time, should be going back in time and exploring how the past generations did things too, because there is unquestionably stuff in there that is totally worth replicating and like holding on to, revitalizing, continuing, 
maybe like a new take on certain things because there's new technologies that can make things better. So I think the best people at this are not just the ones who are all in on the new stuff, right? Because that's its own kind of blind spot. And you also can't be clinging to the old stuff and like, you know, old man shakes fist at clouds. Totally. You've got to be both. Yeah. You've got to be both the old man and the young whippersnapper. And th- this was the reason and example of that for me. So yeah, what's that have to do with this article? This article I pulled up, the title is Hell is a World in Which Everybody Writes Like Axios. And <laughs> I uh, 10 points for the title on this. <laughs> also, the slug I loved, which is, this is from the New Republic, and the slug is Axios Smart Brevity Book Hell World. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for people who don't know, I would say I come from a newsletter uh, background. Axios, huge name in newsletter writing. And they're very famous for what they call smart brevity, which is the style in which they write all their newsletters. It's sort yeah. of like short, punchy. They bold things, make it easy to skim. They they bullet stuff a lot. It's become known as like this uh, smart brevity style. In fact, they've got a custom CMS they use to actually write it and make sure that their style is like universal. It's like Hemingway times 10. Exactly. And it turns out it actually, it actually builds on something, um, Time Magazine first started. So a lot of people don't know this. I've been reading the history of Time Magazine, um, recently. And when Time started, the first issue was 32 pages. It had 119 stories in it. And their whole thing was, we're going to update you on all the most important news and we're going to do it in an hour. And it's going to be their whole, like it was, Hey, get time. It's brief. Like mm. time, it's brief. That was their slogan. That was their like catch out of the gate. So they were the ones who really sort of, and, and I'm sure maybe there was somebody before them, but but it, like within our generation or within like our our century, time was the one that really came out of the gate with this like short, punchy style. I'm gonna give you the news. I'm gonna give it to you quick, and you're gonna be able to skim this whole thing, right? Axios is now taking that to the next level, and the writer of this article basically says this sucks. They're like, this is like the worst. I mean, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to like gratuitously put my own spin on their words here. So who wrote this? Timothy Noah. If you're listening, I'm. Oh, he's the no opinion guy, right? Is he? I don't know. Is he? I read no opinion, but I I would be, that would actually surprise me. No, I don't think he is. You know why? Because Mm -hmm. I looked at his bio and I'm like, I I don't know anything that this guy has done, which was part of my, part of why I was incredulous of the opinion was like, Okay, fine. You hate Axios, but Axios yeah, is like but what have you done? One right? of the exactly. most. Uh, yeah. And, and All right, Timothy, who... let's see what you got. Yeah. So, but, but, okay, but here's his point. His point is this. He, and I want to say out of the gate, I agree with his underlying premise, which is that if everybody was to, if everybody was to write the exact same yeah. way Axios, yeah, that would fucking suck. That would be, ugh, makes me nauseous just thinking of it, right? Diversity of writing and style. That's what makes all this stuff fun. But, Timothy, it's a stretch to say, and he goes in here to kind of say, he tries to basically point out why he thinks Axios writing is the worst. And one of the things that he says is that it is actually harder to skim Axios than it would be to skim editorial writing because Axios has been pre-skimmed. And like I said, it's like very, it's bulleted, bolded, like you, it, you literally, like there's almost no way to read Axios except to skim it, right? Yeah. I think that's a stretch. When, and when I read that, what I see is somebody who is nervous about like the direction of an industry and is trying to hold on to the initial uh, or is trying to hold on to something. And here's the reality. The reality is the world needs both ways. It needs axios. It needs full on editorial writing. And if you write editorially well and you're able to like find your audience, you're always going to have a spot. You're always at the gonna table. have a spot. Exactly. That's why I'm not afraid at all. Like, if Wait But Why can be as popular as it is, I know people are gonna read my shit. <laughs> totally. Because you know? it's long form. I mean, if for anybody who doesn't know, is that why is that why you're saying that? Because yeah, it's super long. Like it's his also, article, like forty thousand words long. That he, you said it perfectly when we brought when we brought Tim Urban. Right, that's his name, Tim Urban. Yep. When you when we brought him up before, it's you say he breaks all the rules. And I've always felt with my writing, like, this doesn't fit into anything. This is a rule breaker because I was so influenced by copy blogger with headers and bullet points. And sometimes I'll just make something bold because I know it's at a spot where it's like your thumb's going to stop here. You know, and so like I was so influenced mm-hmm. by that mindset of understanding that people skim visually 
but I was also influenced by, you know, the Neil Gaiman's of the world who I've spoken to a lot of times. Like, if you don't read the whole fucking thing, then you lose all the magic. And so I've, I've, I'm not insecure about it anymore. I don't know if insecure is the right word. I've been finding my lane. You know, yep. I'm thinking to myself, like, well, who, who am I even writing to? What am I even writing about? You know, and so eventually some maxims came to mind. You know, one of them is I don't I have no advice to give, only experience to share. And so, like, now I have a framework in which I can write. I know who I'm writing to for the most part. So this isn't about me. I'm just saying that there's no point in being fearful about what people create because mm-hmm. there's there's no scarcity on new ideas. And in fact, the best way to advocate, let's say, for the ideas that you like the most is to share them. <laughs> and so like, so it's, it's very counterintuitive because you would think like, oh, no, I have to defend my idea. But it's actually the opposite. If you care about your idea, the thing you have to do is share as much as you possibly can. And then totally. your idea will bounce and carve itself against the erosion of all the other content that's floating out there until eventually you become what you become. That's a good way of putting it. And also, okay, I, I really liked uh, one particular part of that where you talked about not being afraid of what other people are creating. Yeah. Or not being afraid of like, the direction that you see an industry going it's hard it uh, yeah it's definitely hard i think i think it's kind of it's kind of hard in the same way that like when people say oh if you want to be an investor in the stock market you can't make emotional decisions like just index all your money and and never take it out like that's, that's a I hard do. thing to do what's that that's exactly what i do <laughs> that's same here but you, but you know what and it's hard at first but then, like, you can only read so many times that, like, hey, this is, like, mathematically, the best thing that you could possibly do is just index your money and leave it in forever, right? And you're either going to say, well, yeah, that's hard, and I'm going to do it. You just just do it. Yep. Or you don't. I feel like this is kind of the same way. It's like, yeah, sure, it's hard not to be afraid of the direction the industry is going. The first couple of times you see waves being made. And then at some point, you just have to make a decision like, oh, this is actually just the thing that I I just don't fear new technology, new style. Like, I choose to look for the best in it. I choose to push myself to embrace some form of it or see how my craft can grow through the availability of this new thing. I choose all those things because otherwise, you're just going to be stressed out, man. We live in an age of innovation. It, it, yes. It's never going to slow down, uh, right? So well said. I... I remember writing for the first time that I needed to be comfortable with the real possibility that the 70 grand I have in Bitcoin might disappear. And as soon as I said it, I was like, okay. And that's the absolute worst thing that's going to happen. But like I chose to also ride this wave of potential innovation and, and maybe it won't work. But it just when you said the anxiety or like the fear, I think you said of you could you could be a newsletter writer that indexes all of your money for your entire life. Right. If we're making comparisons, like you could easily be that guy and you could make like a nine percent compounding return on your writing until the day you die. Right. And maybe you do that, too. And you maybe you could also put all of your writing in Bitcoin, or maybe you could put some of your writing in Bitcoin. (laughs) Like the, there's no rules. You can do whatever you want. And that was very comforting to me. And I think again, one of the reasons why when I saw Tim Urban for the first time and I saw like, yeah, what? Like this isn't, this isn't real. Like you can't do this. And he's just like, sure I can. What are you talking about? I'm doing it. Like I'm doing it right now. And it, it broke those, those, uh, casts in my mind. That's really what it is. Realizing, and and I think part of that's a time thing. You, you just you, you stick around long enough to see enough people break the rules and get away totally. with it. And you're like, oh, actually, there is room at the table here for everybody. But yeah. I think when it comes to like AI specifically, this was a this was something. It is something that I um, am like working on, not fearing myself. So it's top of mind, right? Like 
it's hard to look at something that has the potential to completely undermine your industry and be like, it's probably going to be fine. But I think that's, again, I think it's a choice that you make and it's a choice that I'm like working through myself. So these are, these have all been top of mind for me. And I think it's interesting how much of this conversation came back to that, uh, concept of like looking into the thing that you fear the most and like actually just getting comfortable with it. But there's one more thing I want to say. This is, this is not related to the bigger picture here. This is, this is specifically related to this article that I talked about. And I don't typically like call out people that I think are wrong, right? <clears throat> For the most part, I, uh, prefer to just talk about things that I think are helpful and useful. But I had a little bit of an issue with this, and there's a reason for it, which is that people there's like there's a reason people write like Axios. Like there's a technical reason yeah. why the writing is that way. And I like I said, I agree with this guy's point. Not everybody should do that. But for people who are thinking about newsletter writing, it's really important to understand the reason that Axios is written the way that it is. And it it has to do with like the way that people are reading that content, what they're trying to get out of it to write in, in, in the way that this guy is suggesting people write and expect somebody to read that, say, on a mobile phone is in some cases doing a disservice to your Definitely. reader, some cases. And so it's important not just to look at the development of a style through the lens of like, do I like this or not? Or, you know is this a bad direction or not? But like, why is this actually happening? Yeah. What are the technical reasons? Like even editorial writing, there's a reason it exists and it, 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 it arose largely from the technical limitations that were put on the medium beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I think you should think through those things before you uh, choose a point of view, because you may just be defending like, you know, technology from 150 years ago like the printing press which is why editorial uh columns are written the way they are in some cases anyways Certainly. all that to say yeah all that to say there's a reason axios writes this way and they do really good reporting it's not just about their style they actually have really good journalists on their team you got to look at the whole picture before you uh, uh just choose before you choose which direction you want to go and then choose which direction if you want to yeah. write long form editorial go do that yeah this was yeah, great. Quite the wide ranging conversation, my friend. Yeah, but it's so funny how it, it keeps wrapping back around. Like fundamentally, what we talked about is how do you keep your nerve in an ever changing industry that's trying to wipe you out? Right. Mm -hmm. Like this guy has a way that he thinks journalism should be, and he's threatened by a way that it could be. Writers could look at Growth Bar SEO and think, this is what SEO should be. It can't be like this. And this happened last week too. And I'm not quite as hype about it as I was last week because I'm a little bit sleep deprived. But <laughs> these conversations, like they always end up being cyclical where it's in your work, in your business, something is always going to be coming for you. And there's a much better likelihood of success and abundance and just ease of life when you fully recognize what it is look directly at it and then find a way to like have a relationship with it because it's not it's not going anywhere so you're not doing yourself a service by pretending that it is right you're not you're not doing any good by pretending that bears can't climb trees and they're hiding in the top of the tree ain't gonna like it ain't gonna save you <laughs> <laughs> that bear is just going to come and it's slowly come. pull you slowly. out of the tree, <laughs> your fingernails scraping down the bark all the way to the ground. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, would you believe that this is the second time I've had a conversation about bears today? Today? No. <laughs> well, I guess I would, but I, that's it is unlikely. It is legit. <laughs> second time today I've been talking about bears. So there you go, people. I guess... <laughs> Uh, place something's off. always coming for you yeah. uh, keep swimming now this was fun man anything else we gotta tell people thanks for joining us copybloggerpod.com the uh, free the free giveaway on the website people are signing up for it and I'm pumped yeah sign up for the email list on copybloggerpod.com subscribe to the YouTube I really hope people watch the videos because a lot of times we share the screen and it's cool but even if not it's fine we, we appreciate you following us 
Yeah, and let us know uh, what you're doing. I know a bunch of people listening to this are probably experimenting with all these tools right now. So show us what you got. Show us your yeah. dolly pictures on Twitter. I'm at damn Ethan. Tim is at Tim Stotts. Yeah. And show us what you're making with these things. I want to see product pages. I want to see blog posts. I've experimented with the writing thing. It's crazy. So uh, show us what you got. And we'll see you next week.